So many will claim to be under grace, not under law. But the question is, how do you know you need the grace you claim you're under? Hmm? Good question. We've got some answers for you next on Graceful Truth. Join us. From Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Hi there, and welcome to the program. We're continuing our look at sin's relationship to the law. You know, most in Christendom today will simply say, I'm under grace, not under law, and we've done away with the law, and there's no need for the law. But you see, as we're learning here in Romans, it is the law that actually reveals to us our need for the very grace we claim we're under. So how does this relationship work to our benefit in God's glory? Well, these are questions we're answering here today on Graceful Truth. Please join us. Here's our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, with this edition of Graceful Truth. See, in the same way, the word sarks in the, in the original language can mean various things. And we've listed those there for you. But it's important to understand what it means here. In this case, it obviously doesn't mean the whole of mankind because it's being used as a contrast to those who are in the spirit. That's kind of clear. It's not referring to the body or even to any parts of the body. In Romans, it's a term, basically, the last definition there is for unregenerate unbelievers. It's what we were before God saved us. And you see it over in Romans chapter 8. If you look at verse 5, Romans chapter 8, those who live according to the sinful nature or flesh, sarks, that's the same word, have their minds set on what the nat- nature desires. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death. The mind that is controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. One writer says this, where sarks or flesh is understood in the full theological sense, it denotes the being of man which is determined not by his physical substance, but by his relationship to God. And you say, well, why are you bringing this up? Because I want to take just a few moments and kind of debunk a Christian teaching that is very prevalent in so many churches today about the carnal Christian. We've all heard this. We've all, at times, come in, in touch with this. The carnal Christian theology is basically this. It's a teaching that was invented to accommodate all the supposed converts of modern evangelism. It really was. Um, They had to somehow explain why all these people are walking aisles and, and going to evangelistic crusades and being, quote, saved, and yet, where are they today? Why aren't they still living for Christ? And we're referring specifically to those who make decisions by walking aisles, making professions as Christians, raising hands, whatever you want to do it. But their lives have never been changed by the Holy Spirit. They do not love what Christians love. They don't hate what Christians hate. 
They act and they live like non-Christians, and yet they profess Christ. And so their teachers had to come up with a, a reason. And so they came up with an unbiblical category called the carnal Christian. And it basically has a two-experience theory. Stage one is this. It's conversion. You realize that you're lost in your sin. And so you make a decision to receive Jesus as your personal Savior. And when you do that, you're guaranteed that that will keep you out of heaven. Or keep you out of hell. It will keep you out of hell. And now stage two, well that's another decision. And at that point in time, you have to decide, do you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life or not? You've accepted him as your Savior, but now do you want to crown him Lord of your life? It can, you can see where this, this teaching gets off. Uh, it's probably one of the most perverted teachings in our generation. It's not only dangerous, it's not only self-deceiving, but in many cases, it's damning. And as a result of this erroneous teaching, many who regularly occupy the, the pews on a Sunday morning and fill our church roles are strangers to what we would call true conversion. They're strangers to heart religion, the transformation of the heart, because they've never experienced the power of a changed life. They're not new creatures in Christ. For them, the old things have not passed away, as Paul says will happen for those who truly come to Christ in 1 Corinthians 5, 17. But this was invented to kind of help those explain all these people who supposedly came to Christ. And probably one of the most prevalent organizations, unfortunately, that really pushes this is Campus Crusade for Christ. Basically, a pretty good organization. I mean, they, they definitely have evangelistic ideas. They're reaching out to people. This was also popularized by the Schofield Bible, Study Bible, which is a pretty good Bible for the most part. But basically, Schofield divided men into three classes, the natural, the spiritual, and the carnal. And basically, that's what Campus Crusade does. And we've all seen these probably little things. The first one is the self-directed life. And you say, well, what is that? That's the non-Christian. You see the little throne there, and you see the S on it, and you see all the dots. Their life is in chaos. Nothing's structurally. The throne represents who's in charge of their life. Where is the cross? The cross is outside of that circle. Doesn't sound bad. It's actually a pretty good illustration if you want to look at it that way. And then the second class... Basically, here's where they break down. They say Christians who are sinful or they're immature or they're carnal. Look at that diagram. You have self is still on the throne and you have the cross as being subservient to the self and all the little dots are still all messed up. And so they say there's the non-Christian, the one who's not Christ is not in their life at all. Then you have the carnal Christian. That's that theology I'm talking about where you have Christ in your life as your Savior, but he's not your Lord. 
And then they say the third one is the spirit Christ-directed life or Christian. And you see where the cross is. The cross is on the throne, on the chair. S is subservient to the, the chair. And all the little dots are in perfect arrangement. I mean, I remember looking at this as a young believer going, man, this makes perfect sense to me. The only problem is the second diagram is not biblical. See, in the Romans, in our study through Romans, it is usually said that the the man portrayed in, in Romans chapter 7 verse 14, some people say, well, that's the carnal Christian. And we're going to be getting into this in the coming weeks. That he's saved, he trusted Christ as his Savior, but he's just not living for Jesus. He's defeated. He needs to live in the Spirit, but he's living in the flesh. That's the doctrine of this carnal Christian. It basically excuses the behaviors of those who profess Christ as being something unspiritual or carnal. I want to point out to you just quickly that it's important that you're never going to understand Romans 7 and 8 if you think that somehow Paul is describing a defeated Christian who somehow becomes a victorious Christian. That's not what he's saying. Paul's not talking about a carnal Christian versus a spiritual Christian. He's talking about unbelievers and he's talking about believers. He's talking about those who have put their faith and trust in Christ as Jesus and Lord and those who have not. And the contrast is between what we were before our conversion and what we are now. Remember, we, way back when, we, we looked at, you know what, what it meant to be an Adam. And now we're in Christ. There's a difference. What it meant to be a slave to the law. Now we're God's servants. There's a difference. And yet many will still ask, well, what about something like 1 Corinthians chapter 3? If you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul's writing the Corinthians, he says, Brothers, I don't address you as spiritual, but as what? Fleshly, as worldly, mere infants in Christ. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? And see, they take those verses and they say, see, this is, this is describing the carnal Christian. No, it's not. It's just driving Paul's point home even more. What is he doing? See, they're mistakenly supposing that Paul is teaching that men and women can become Christians and yet continue to live a sinful, carnal life. Paul never says that. And yet, they believe that somehow if you do that, then eventually you'll kind of catch up and then you'll, then you'll make Jesus your Lord and then you'll fully be a spiritual being. But that's not what 1 Corinthians 3 says. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what it does not say. The Christians in Corinth were indeed acting badly. That's clear. I mean, just read the book. I mean, they had all sorts of sin going on in their church. As Christians often do. And in that way, their lives were classified by Paul as worldly or fleshly. They were acting as if they were not Christians, as, they were, as if they were mere men. That's why he uses that word, as if they were unregenerate. 
But because they were not unregenerate, but were actually Christians, Paul says, you need to stop this. This is not excusable. There's no reason why you should be having this bad behavior, this behavior that doesn't honor your Savior. Their sin was inconsistent with what they had become in Christ. And therefore, Paul classified it as intolerable. He wasn't going to stand for it. And that's exactly, when we get back to Romans, that's exactly what Paul is saying through these chapters 7 and 8. He's been teaching that the Christian is not what he was before he became a Christian. That person is what? Dead. It's buried. It's gone. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And because of that, we must live, we must act, we must think, we must speak differently. Like Christ. We have a new desire to serve Him. We have a a desire to put our needs aside. We have a desire to realize that other people need to hear this message of the gospel. So I'm going to sacrifice in order for that to happen. And we're called to serve our Savior. We're not called to sit. We're not called to be a spectator. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to serve. And we're called to serve, beloved, until it hurts. (laughs) Why? Because that's what Christ did. That's exactly what Christ did. And when we remember the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf, this is why when we come around this table, we need to do some self-examination. We need to look at our own hearts. Am I holding on to some profession of faith that I made years ago and haven't seen or heard of Christ since then? But because I walked an aisle or I raised my hand, I guess I'm a Christian. They say I am. If Christ has not changed you, you are not changed. (laughs) It's that simple. Now, do we still struggle with sin? Sure, we all do. But we have to have the understanding that God has given us victory and a way out so that we can become victorious over sin and death. Positionally, we already are. We just have to live up to that expectation. And that's why he says here in uh, Romans that this, this whole idea of bringing forth fruit, this fruit should be not fruit for death. That's what we did before we were a Christian. We worked and we worked and we tried to please God. And, and, and Paul says, that's not, not, not worth it. It doesn't do anything for you. But now... The end of verse 6, it says that we serve in a new way, the way of the Spirit, not in an old way of the written code. He meant that we were unable to do good works. There's no way we could please God. Absolutely no way. And when he talks here of being married to Christ and that we're freed from our marriage to this old law because we died, Paul's point is the same. We died to the law in order that we might be brought into a new and fruitful relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we need to remind ourselves that this is true. The law not only is not sin, the law not only provokes sinners to sin, but the law, through our failures to keep it, brings us to the end of ourselves. It brings us to the end of ourselves In other words, when we finally realize, you know what? There's nothing I can do. 
There's nothing I can do to make myself saved. God, you need to help me. And you know, a lot of people have a problem with that. A lot of people say, you know, when you, when you talk to people and you say, you know, you need to yield your life to Christ. You need to give up control. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to give up control. No way, I can't do that. Think of someone who's drowning in a pool. They're drowning. They're drowning in the pool. They're screaming for help. And you're beside the pool, so you jump in to save this person. And you swim up next to them. And you grab them. And this happens a lot of times. Any lifeguard knows this. Is that person just go, okay, just take me away. No. What do they do? They fight you. They don't want to give up control. Even though they're drowning in the pool. And someone's there to save him. They're kicking. And, and sometimes they, they got to get a, a good grip on him. And literally restrain them. And take them to the side of the pool. So that they don't drown. That's how so many people are when it comes to yielding their life to Christ. They're saying, no, 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 I can't give up control. Well, you know what? You're either going to drown and go to hell or you're going to give up control to a God who loves you and cares for you and provided a way out of your sinful state. There's no other option. See, and that's what we need to understand. It's not like you're, you're giving up control to somebody who's not going to save you. It's not that you're giving up control to somebody who's going to cause you to drown. They, God has your best interest at heart. We need to be reminded of that. We need to come to the end of ourselves and say, you know what? God, I'm in faith, I'm just going to cry out to you. I'm going to trust you. That somehow, this is the real deal. And I look around and I see the changes that you have made in people's lives. And yeah, it's a little freaky to give up control. I don't like to give up control. That's why I drive everywhere usually. I don't like somebody else driving. Just kind of sets me, you know, I just can't relax. I've gotten better. But usually, me or my wife, it's my wife or I, it's, it's me driving. Not that she's a bad driver, by the way, but it's just, that's just the way it is. And she's grown to prefer that. But it's, it's a matter of control, see? And we need to come to the end of ourselves. And that's what he says there in the verses that we read. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. In other words, Paul's saying, before I knew about the law, I was fine. See, but once you find that God has a standard, then all of a sudden, wow, man, that just wipes you out. And you need to come in the prescribed manner that God has given us. So the law brings us to the end of ourselves. It really does. There's no way we can keep it. There's no other way out. And that's what he says. When he says, I died, he basically means the way I was living, I had to give it up. It was over. I couldn't continue in this fashion. It's like the, the, the Pharisee in Jesus' story in Luke 18. He's talking to Jesus, and, and, or he's talking to God, and the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like the swindlers and the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay my tithes of all that I get. And here's this, this poor, broken soul over there. All he can do is beat his chest and cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. See, that's the kind of prayer that will save you. It doesn't involve raising your hand. It doesn't involve walking down an aisle. It involves making a decision based on the information you're given about the God who loves you and the way of salvation that he's given to you. And as we come to this table today, I just want to remind us that we, we need to be reminded that it's not all about us. That this law could never save anybody if it, if it, if it had to. It, it never would happen. It just, it just doesn't have the ability to save us. But that's why Christ had to send a Savior. But when we're also out there preaching the gospel, we need to make sure that we teach the law of God to waken the hearts of people, to show them their own sinfulness. You know, don't go out there giving them some happy, happy Jesus message. You know, Jesus wants you to be happy. God has a wonderful plan for your life. All this stuff, you know. I mean, tell them what the word of God says, that they're lost in their sin. And take them through the commandments if they doubt. Have they ever lied? Have they ever told a, 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 a lie? Have they ever um, stolen anything that's not, not theirs? Have they ever thought a, a, a lustful thought? Whatever it might be. Take them through that. Not, not anybody can stand up against that. And what are you doing? You're pointing out that, you know what? You're at the end of yourselves too. You just don't know it. And God will show you your need of a Savior. And I think that we need to be Definitely reminded of that. I want to close with an illustration that James Boyce used in his commentary. He tells of a time when John Gerstner, who was retired from teaching in church, he retired from uh, church history at, at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He was at a certain church and he was preaching from Romans and he was expounding on the law and used it to expose how, how God uses it to expose sin. And after the service, a woman came up to him and she held up her hand and with her index finger and her thumb, she said, you know what, Dr. Gerstner? You made me feel about this big. And his reply was classic. He said, but madam, that's far too big. <laughs> that's much too big. Don't you know that that much self-righteousness will take you to hell. See, that is so true. And we need to be reminded of that. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this message. Lord, we pray that we would understand that there's no in-between stage of Christianity. Either you're all in or you're all out. And Lord, we know that at times that we do give in to sin. And Father, you, you have provided a way for that, of forgiveness. And we come to this table and we thank you for our communion time that we can look at our lives and look into our hearts. And if there's anything there that is hindering our relationship with you or with others, Father, now is the time to deal with it. That we can come to you in prayer and asking and acknowledging your forgiveness and turning from that. And so, Lord, we pray today that as we celebrate this time of communion, if there's any here who has yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray that what a wonderful time to cry out to you, to, to the Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, save me. I know that there's no way out of my sin other than Christ. He's the only Savior. He's the only lifeguard that's helping me. Help me to understand that I need to cooperate. I need to yield my life to him, and he'll transform me. And he'll save me from my sin. 
And as believers, as we examine our own hearts, I pray that this time would be a time of seriousness. And this table is for those who acknowledge Christ as their Lord and Savior. They, they understand who Christ is. They've committed their lives to following Him. If you're not one of those people here today, I just pray that you would pass the elements by. This is serious business. And I pray that we would help them to understand that. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650 650- 366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.